baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and today's date is December 1st, 2016, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this in a virtual Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and let's face it, the birthplace of the Silicon Valley and modern-day technology. This is where the future is. And I'll tell you, this is a very special day for the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. If you're listening to me on your earbuds right now, I am on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podbean, all that crap. If you're watching me, hi. I'm on YouTube right now, and I am celebrating something very special today. This is episode number 1,500. That's right. For 1,500 straight days, I've done a baseball podcast, whether it's Christmas, whether it's 4th of July, whether it's my kid's birthday, whether I'm in the hospital with a kidney stone, every damn day I'm here. And today, I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I'm here. I'm doing this on video. I am rolling up my sleeves, literally. See, that is a correct use of literally, because you could say figuratively rolling up my sleeves. Well, the fact of the matter is I just did. And I'm here to do video podcasting for you today. Just something to you know, mix up my pitches. On podcast number 1000, I did a whole thing in a studio with a studio audience at Aaron Dolan as a guest and a little thing called life got in the way of me doing that again this time but you know what throw the camera on put a green screen behind me boom we're talking this is the future the future of baseball and baseball podcasting and I'm going to continue doing this and by doing this I mean doing podcasting not rub my nose some of you haven't seen me since the last video, since episode number 1000, which was 500 days ago. Yeah, I'm growing a beard. That's right. There's some gray in it. Do you know why? I'm no longer in my 20s. So I was thinking about doing something for episode number 1500, and I, it kind of evolved like a lot of the podcasts that I do do, that they're not, you know, it's not like I'm going to sit down and write this, and, and eventually it's sort of, morphs into something I wasn't expecting. And I was going to do a podcast about uniforms. I thought we're going to be able to use this as a visual medium as well as an audio medium. See, if you weren't watching me, you couldn't see those hand gestures that I do from time to time. But as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do or say about uniforms, I realized that it was actually evolving into a podcast about nostalgia. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. We like to believe that baseball exists in kind of a timeless manner. That we like to think that baseball exists in the past, the present, and the future all simultaneously. That we look at a game that's happening now and we're trying to figure out what is going to happen. What is, how is the game going to unfold? How is the league going to unfold? And it always harkens back 
to the past, the players of the past, the records of the past, the images of the past, they're indelible. They're there. No matter what stadium we go to, there's some image of the past going on somewhere behind it. In some places, the, the, the history is rich. You go to Yankee Stadium, New Yankee Stadium, the rich history dating all the way back to 2009. But there's a great history of the Yankees playing in the Bronx or go to Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. You go to games in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, all these places. You go up the 101 to AT&T Park and you see the statues. They have the statues of McCovey and Marischal and Willie Mays and who else is that? Orlando Cepeda. I think Gaylord Perry has a statue now. And eventually there'll be one for Posey and eventually there'll be one for Bochi. Maybe there'll even be one for Marco Scudero. So we're constantly being remembered of the past. We're constantly being drawn to the nostalgia of baseball. But what I found interesting when I was doing a little bit of research here for episode number 1500 is that it is a nostalgia, yes, but it's not a nostalgia that goes all the way back. There is a demarcation of when we picture what the good old days of baseball are with the nostalgia that we're drawn to. It's not going all the way back, not even going all the way back to the times where we're familiar with who the players are. It's as if our nostalgia is driving us to one specific time period. And we're seeing that that nostalgia is really not about harking for the baseball at that point but wondering if we could bring ourselves back to that point. Let me explain to you what I mean. I'm going to give you an interesting example that isn't baseball related. Picture in your mind a traditional Christmas. We're, we're about ready. We're in the Christmas season. We're in the holiday season, however you want to put it. But when you think of a Christmas and you think about an old-fashioned Christmas, I bet some images popped into your head. I bet a lot of it looked kind of like something you would see from A Christmas Carol. It's somewhat Victorian. When you think of a traditional Christmas, you think of the tree, you think of the, the wreath and everything, but you may picture carolers. When you see like carolers go out, a lot of times you'll see them dressed in sort of Victorian garb. And a lot of the Christmas traditions that we have trace back to Victorian age. Why? Because before the Victorian age, Christmas was not that major of a holiday. Christmas was on the calendar, but it wasn't even considered some time that you take your time off, except for maybe some groups here or there. But the popularity of Christmas skyrocketed when Prince Albert brought over a bunch of traditions from Germany to England, Queen Victoria embraced them, and it became this big, huge thing, the mistletoe, the wreaths, all the, you know, the, the presents under the tree and everything, all that small stuff really skyrocketed there. And so when you have an image in your mind of what traditional Christmas is, it's really based on Victorian ideas and sort of a nostalgia of wanting to go back, you know, though there's a, this is a, I guess, a glory time for Christmas or a traditional time during a period of great power the British Empire. Now, think about baseball. Think about when you think of traditional baseball, traditional uniforms, traditional stadiums. 
you're probably not going to go all the way back to 1900. Just like in Christmas, you don't go all the way to Bethlehem circa zero. But Sally, it actually, they figured out that it was 4 BC. Shut up. I know. I'm just... They weren't celebrating Christmas at 4 BC. Knock it off. I have a feeling, if I asked you what traditional uniforms are, if you were going to have a, a team wear their traditional uniforms, or you see a stadium that's going to be more of a traditional-looking stadium, or you have sort of a attitude towards the game, which is more of a traditional attitude towards the game. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you're not going to go all the way back to 1900. You're not going to go all the way back to Alexander Cartwright playing with the New York Knickerbockers and the New York Nine or whatever the hell they were called playing on the Elysian Fields of New Jersey. I bet there's some images that you will pop in your head that will be baseball right around the time of the end of World War II. And an examination of baseball uniforms and what we consider to be the traditional good uniform that each team has of the old pre-expansion era teams will show that when we go back to a traditional, go back to a throwback the clock, or just change back the uniforms back to the old version, almost all of them can be traced to the specific uniforms that were being worn shortly after the Second World War. Now, there's some uniforms that have been pretty steady over the years, but maybe not as steady as you think. The Boston Red Sox, for example, have had several variations. Sometimes there's pinstripes, sometimes there's white hats and things like that. The B, the red B logo on the blue hat has been consistent for a while. The white outline appeared after World War II. And save for the 1970s when they did the pullover uniform, their uniforms have been unchanged. The Yankees have been very, very consistent, although they didn't have the NY on their jersey during the Babe Ruth years. Their logo, the bat with the top hat, a traditional Yankee logo, was also introduced after World War II. And the Cardinals have always had the little two little birds on the bat and some variations on that. And the Cincinnati Reds have been pretty consistent with the wishbone C and the Reds in the middle of it. But a lot of other teams that we think of having a pretty solid traditional look had a really malleable and, and varied uniform history. And some of them are, are virtually unrecognizable, even to a fan of the quality of me, or at least the quantity of me. You may not think I'm a quality fan, but I'm certainly a quantity fan. You don't do 1,500 of these in a row, in terms of days in a row, and not be a quantity fan. Now, imagine what the Braves look like. If I said the traditional Braves uniform, you're going to picture the script Brave with a tomahawk underneath it. And variations that they've done on that over the years have been looked at. Now, go back to the traditional uniforms. Well, those uniforms weren't introduced until 1946. Before that, the Braves, their uniforms were all over the map. You couldn't even, there was no consistent style in font, in colors, or even the name. For a while, they were the Boston Bees. But the uniform that showed up post World War II 
That's the uniform we all accept as a traditional Braves uniform. Now, the Indians, their uniforms bounce all over the place. But when the Indians went back to supposed traditional uniforms when they opened up Jacobs Field in 1994, what traditional uniforms did they go back to? Not the crazy ones they wore in the 1920s, not the bananas ones they wore in the 1970s, but the ones they wore right after World War II. Quick, what are the pirates' colors? Black and yellow, right? Those were brought in 1948. Their colors were all over the map. Giants bringing in black and orange. Again, solidified the black and orange post-World War II. Before that, they had varying uniforms, including in the era, during the glory years of the New York Giants, the Giants' uniforms were bananas. There were checks and, and stripes and all over the place. Sometimes there was pink, pink in the uniform. This is John McGraw, a tough guy, brawling. He, he would beat me up for at the end of a podcast if I ever met him. He put his players in pink pinstripes or checks or something. But when we think of the Giants, it's black and orange, right? Trust me, everyone up, up the 101 there, they're wearing the black and orange. They're not wearing the pink things. You think about the Dodgers, Dodger blue. It was Dodger green for a while. And the and I mentioned the Pirates. There was no rhyme or reason for their logo, for their font. For a while, when they won their first World Series on the, on their shoulder here, it had the it said PBC. It took me a second to figure out what the hell that even meant. It means Pirates Baseball Club or maybe Pittsburgh Baseball Club. I don't know, and neither do you. The Tigers. Well, I mean, come on. We all know the Tigers haven't changed. That's always been the old-fashioned D. That's why they have that. Except, if you look at their history, they bounced between an old-fashioned D, a block D, and a really kind of weird Tiger picture that they had on their, on their chest. The current incarnation of what the Cubs logo, that didn't really show up till the 1950s. And same with the Phillies, whose uniforms were all over the place. Their fonts were all over the place. They're, they even were called the Blue Jays at one point. And no one paid attention, but they put a Blue Jay on there. They had a weird P. They had P's, they had, they had block P's. It didn't matter until the post-World War II Phillies and the Whiz Kids, and boom. Suddenly, that became their look. That became their uniform. Right down the line of virtually every team that existed at World War II that's the uniform and the look that we're trying to get back to. And I think what that means to me is that there's something maybe in our psyche, maybe in our subconscious here in America, that we're longing to get back to that point. We're longing to get back to right after World War II. A war that made sense, a war that we won, a just war and all this stuff. And we came out victorious and we were on top. And I'm sure it wasn't great for everybody. Like all nostalgia, it's painting on a brush of pure happiness and painting over the lumps. But 
that's where baseball nostalgia always is dragged into the vortex of the years after World War II. Do you know who wasn't so eager to cling to the years after World War II? The people living in America. Think about all the things that are instantly changed. Buildings knocked down. They knocked down Penn Station, for God's sakes. And built all the new building works and building all these new you know, government buildings and skyscrapers and everything like that, knocking everything down and wanting to turn our culture into, you know, TV dinners, leisure culture, all this stuff. Highways, cars. You know, the minute that we got back for World War II, you'll notice the teams started moving. The Braves, the Browns, the A's, Dodgers, the Giants. So it's, it's as if we're going to that tiny sliver of a time right after World War II where we look at the players and their deities, DiMaggio, Williams. It's the moment of integration. So we deify Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays a few years after that. And there's almost sacrilege if you try to compare a player from today to then because that is... The end-all, be-all, the time after World War II, the time that we have to constantly bring our teams back to, to the point where teams that weren't even around then are drawn into that vortex. If there was ever a franchise that symbolized the moving forward, the future of baseball and the future of the country and the future of America and the future of the American ideal, it's the Houston Astros. Houston Astros were formed, originally they're called the Cold 45s, but the Astros were formed to be in a city of Houston, which was exploding because of the space race. It was a new huge city. Houston existed, but now it was a metropolis because of the space race. The team's name reflected that. The stadium reflected that. The uniforms reflected that. They were the team of the future. And look what they did to them. They turned them into some sort of BS nostalgia with a hill in center field and a brick stadium and traditional uniforms, hearkening back to a nostalgia that didn't even exist for them. Putting a team like the Mariners in traditional uniforms when they had really kind of cool, new, modern-looking uniforms. No, no, make them look nostalgic. For what? They were formed in 1977. They should be wearing bell-bottoms. But no, everything is drawn back to them. Look what happened with the Mets. The Mets are a team of the 60s. When the Giants left and the Dodgers left, there was a vortex it was a void that needed to be filled with New York fans that they created the Giants. So the first few years did play in the polo grounds, but moved on to Shea Stadium, a 60s stadium. They were a swinging 60s team. The Beatles played where they was their home. That didn't come out right. And Oscar Madison covered the game. And they were the late 60s when they became great again. And suddenly it was a new team for a new generation. And yeah, Shea Stadium was kind of dumpy, but it looked like what the 60s looked like. 
It had a 60s feel. You could picture Don Draper going there. But when the Mets finally got a new stadium, did they get a stadium that embodied the spirit of the 60s and the hopefulness of the 60s and the uniqueness of a new generation? No. They made it look like Ebbets Field. They made it look like where the Dodgers played. That is, that's no different than if you have a spouse who is a beautiful, sexy spouse, but they run off. They leave you for someone in California. Then you meet someone else who turns into a really loving and caring and faithful spouse, and they stay with you. And ultimately, you get enough money and you build your new spouse a home, but you build it to honor the one who left you. They're honoring the team that left instead of the team that stayed. That's not the Mets nostalgia. The Mets nostalgia is the 60s. And here's one reason why I'm bringing this up. I'm about as big a baseball fan as you will ever meet in your life. You may meet someone who ties me. But they may not beat me. And I have tremendous nostalgia. Yet my nostalgia is towards the 1970s and the 1980s. Now, say that to someone who harkens back to the 40s, and I'm saying something sacrilegious, but do you know what? My first concrete memories were watching teams with pullover uniforms that were, I think they were polyester, in these concrete donuts with big hair coming out and bright, colorful, weird-looking uniforms on AstroTurf. And do you know what? I fell in love with that game. Yeah, I grew up going to Fenway Park when I was a kid and going to Yankee Stadium in the summertime. But when I went to Shea Stadium, I was in awe of it. My cousins stopped by with a program of veteran stadium. I was like, oh, my God. And I would see the picture. And, yeah, it looked like a donut. But do you know what happened in that donut? That's where Tug McGraw clinched the World Series. That's where Pete Rose caught that pop-up that was dropped by Bob Boone and did that badass little dribble on the AstroTurf. I grew up watching the Cardinals slapping the ball into the gap and going first to third. I grew up watching the Phillies and the Astros wearing gaudy uniforms, bright orange, powder blue, in a concrete donut and a dome, played one of the greatest postseason games and series of all time in 1980. I wish they left one concrete donut stadium. I wish they left one. I wish some of the teams that were formed in the 70s kept their crazy uniforms. I'm glad the Blue Jays did. I'm glad the Blue Jays did. I'm glad they're staying in the dome because they aren't a team from the 40s. That's my nostalgia. That's what I look back to. That's what I sometimes long for. When I think about the baseball that I had growing up, my first images of the Red Sox were wearing the red hats and the polyester uniforms that they pulled over. I remember when they went to the blue hats, the butt down, they're like, ah, look at that, a new look for the Red Sox. All the new stadiums are supposed to look old-fashioned and with quirks and mannerisms. And yeah, some of it's fine. Camden Yards is great. Petco Park is great. AT&T Park is great. These stadiums are terrific. 
when I watch a game in St. Louis or Washington or Philadelphia, I can't tell the difference. How is that different than the cookie cutter stadiums? I can't tell the difference between them anymore. If they still played in Bush Stadium or the Vet, I could tell the difference. So nostalgia is always a dangerous thing because it paints an entire era as something to look back to without taking into account some of the bad things. It wasn't a good time for a lot of people. It was a time where I'm sure for a lot of people, they don't want to go back to that. You can only remember the good things, fine. I remember the good things of the 70s. I bet there are things that sucked about the 70s. And you know what? There's some kid who's going to be nostalgic for right now. Think about that for a second. So let's not have nostalgia be the, well, be monopolized to go back to the post-World War II era. Let's embrace all eras because it's, we don't go back to the Depression. We don't go back to the 1910s. We don't have the players with the big collars and the pillbox hats anymore. Trust me, they tried that in the 70s. It didn't quite work. It didn't catch on, except the Pirates did it, and they turned it into something that was a combination of nostalgia and disco badassery. And that also happened to be the first World Series I ever watched. And I've been hooked ever since. Look, we can all be nostalgic, but we can be nostalgic for things that we truly long for instead of having something shoved down our throats. I wish there was more nostalgia towards the 70s and the 80s in baseball because that's when I grew to love it. I didn't see Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. I saw Andre Dawson and Jim Rice and Ken Griffey Jr. and Ozzie Smith and J.R. Richard and Pete Rose and Ron Guidry. And I don't feel cheated. I don't feel cheated at all. So folks, as you float down the River Sully, dipping your toe in from time to time to listen to me do these podcasts, and tomorrow will be episode number 1000. 501. All I can say is be nostalgic. Own your nostalgia. But remember, don't monopolize it. Someone may be nostalgic for the thing that you kind of thumb your nose at. Well, that's when it wasn't as good. When my day was better. Now, do you know what? My day was better. But then again, in my day, I couldn't do a podcast. 365 days a year, 1,500 straight days. So, with that in mind, please, where is it? Oh, go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, like me on SoundCloud, like me on iTunes. Where's iTunes? iTunes, uh, Stitcher. Um, I'm on Instagram at Sully Baseball Podcast. You can be old school and send me an email here at info at sullybaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been a video and audio 
Sully Baseball Daily Podcast, talking about nostalgia, episode number 1,500. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. <laughs> 